Okay, if you haven't already done so, turn to 3 John. I'm going to say two things to two people first before we start. First of all, thank two people. I want to thank Mike for burying his soul this morning, pretty obviously. In fact, the pulpit here is pretty well drenched with tears, it looks like. And uh, thank you for showing us the greatness of God this morning, Mike, and uh, the worship due his name. Secondly, I want to thank Ken Fuller for... Uh, bringing to us the book of Zechariah lately, and he'll continue on and when he gets back in a couple of weeks. He's somewhere in Asia. We don't know where, no, we, we, but uh, he's out there, and so I'm thankful for him. I've never heard anybody, by the way, listen, my whole life, uh, teach through the book of Zechariah. Never one time. That's kind of telling, isn't it? Anyway, we're not in Zechariah. We're in 3 John. Turn to 3 John. The truth is hard to come by these days in this country, for sure, in this, this world. You know, it, used to, it used to be a saying. A lot of you know this saying. Back in the day, people used to say a man's word is his bond. Whatever he says, in other words, whatever he says is true, number one. Number two, if he makes a promise, he's going to keep it. Or people would say, let's just shake on it. Shake hands. That was the end of the deal. And if you did that, you knew that that word, that, that agreement would come to pass. But today is a different story. People have no qualms about breaking even signed contracts. They will sign contracts. That means nothing to them. They don't have a problem breaking those signed contracts. And you better be prepared to have a, an attorney to hire and a court of law to go to to deal with that situation. Even then, people are liable to lie under oath, which happens all the time in, in the court of law. So truth is not held in high regard today, but then again, it was never popular. When was truth ever popular? Never has been. After all, the world system is under the leadership of Satan, who is called by Jesus in John 8, the father of lies. In fact, in John 8, Jesus said he is a liar and the father of lies. He also said of Satan, Satan does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him at all. Now, in contrast to, to that, the Lord puts an extremely high premium on the truth. So for us, truth is everything. You think about the times it says, it talks about the truth in the scriptures. Truth is necessary for salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto me, unto the Father, but through me. Truth is necessary for sanctification. Jesus said, sanctify them in, thy, in, the, in your truth. Your word is truth. Now for a couple of weeks, while Ken is roaming the greater Asian continent, we are going to be in the book of 3 John, the Lord willing, I should say. The little book of 3 John is concerned with the truth. And 3 John actually is more like a postcard. You could think of it in those terms. It's only 15 verses long. Stephen read it for us. And I would have said, Stephen, how did we find this book? I would have said 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. That should help you out somewhat. Now, what you see in this book is the relationship people bear to the truth. The relationship, the relationship people bear to the truth, either we respond properly to the truth or we don't. There's three men who are highlighted in 3 John. Two of those men have a positive response to the truth. One of those men responds negatively. Those three men are Gaius, or as Stephen called him, Gaius, which is the British pronunciation, which I appreciate. I'm going to call him Gaius because I'm used to saying Gaius. Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius. Tonight, we're going to look at the first of these men, Gaius, and we're going to find that in Gaius, there is a demonstration of the truth. In Gaius, we will find a demonstration of the truth. Now, why do I say that? Why do I say Gaius demonstrated the truth? 
First of all, because John says Gaius is walking in the truth. He's walking in the truth. Verse 1, the, the elder to the beloved Gaius, <clears throat> whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects, or in everything, literally, in all things, you may prosper and be in good health, be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth that that is how you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. So John says he's a person who's walking the truth. Now, truth is not something that's detached from life. It's not distant and harsh. We talk about the cold, hard truth. But truth in this respect should affect our life. It should make a difference. We should not remain aloof from the truth. Gaius was a man who was shaped by the truth. He was a man who was transformed by the truth. He took it in. His life was transformed by the truth of the word of God. And the way John states it, I love the way he states it. He says he's walking in the truth. He's living in the truth, the metaphor for living. Now, first of all, how do we know that John is writing this letter? Well, you say, I know, because right at the beginning it says the third letter of John. Or maybe it says the third epistle of John or something similar. The problem is it never says John's name in the letter anywhere. It doesn't say it. Now, verse 1, the author calls himself what? The elder. This is the elder. Second John is also written by the elder. So whoever wrote Second John, in all likelihood, wrote Third John as well. Who's the elder? Well, the internal witness of Scripture and the external witness of the church down through the ages says it's John. It's the Apostle John. That's who it is. And uh, you, we can tell that by the style and vocabulary of the Gospel of John. Take all his writings, Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And you look at in Revelation, but you look at those books and you see a similar style, a similar, similar vocabulary throughout. You know, you see, when you, write, when you read John, you read things about the truth and the life and the light and all that kind of thing. You see that this has got to be John. As far as 3 John is concerned, the themes of truth and love are also main themes of his other writings. And another thing, he talks about his children, as John does elsewhere. And then look at verse 11. Let's read that. Beloved, tell me who do you think this sounds like? Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Sounds like John. Also, the author of 1 John, go to 1 John chapter 1. The author of 1 John was, in a, was a, an apostle. Look at 1 John 1, 1 to 3. 1 John 1 says, verse 1, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen, we've seen this, we've heard this, we proclaim to you also that you too may have fellowship with us. Our fellowship is with the Father, with the Son. And so I say he's an apostle because apostles were eyewitnesses of the life and ministry of Christ. So he's an apostle. That limits our choice of authors. He's an eyewitness. His writing style and vocabulary sounds like the apostle John. Um, so so which, who is this? Well, there's no question in the minds of the church fathers who were closest to John's time that he lived they say it's definitely John. There's no doubt about it at all. The, the problem developed later on where people forgot about what happened in history. But the tra traditional dating of, of 90 to 95 AD, where these letters were written of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, means that it no doubt was 
the Apostle John. He was the only living apostle left. Only guy left that was an apostle. So again, the internal witness of the scripture and the external witness of the church, church fathers, say that it's John that wrote it, and, and we can believe that. And so we come to the conclusion that the elder, this mysterious the elder, is John. Now, why did he call himself the elder instead of the apostle? Well, for one thing, the elder, elder can mean one who's old, an old man. Or it can mean one who is a leader in the church, like a pastor and overseer. And I believe he's speaking of his position in the body of Christ. He is the elder, as an elder of a church. Why not an elder? Why did he say, I am another elder? I'm a, Peter said in 1 Peter 5.1, I am a, your fellow elder, he said to other elders. He didn't say, I'm the elder. John says, I'm the elder. It's because he's the last apostle living. He's an apostle and an elder, both. He's got this unique position in the churches. So he, he addresses himself as the elder. Everybody knew who it was. Nobody back then questioned who this was. They all knew who it was. They knew it was John the Apostle. But why use the word elder instead of apostle? And I think it's because this is a pastoral letter, 3 John, a, letter, a personal letter, his most personal letter. John the elder has some church business to attend to, and so he writes like this. Who does he address? He's addressing the letter to Gaius. Now, we don't know <clears throat> what position Gaius held in the church, but he must have been influential Based on what is said about him here, John calls him the beloved Gaius in verse 1. There are three men by that name in the New Testament prior to the letters of John here at the end of the Bible. And Gaius, the Gaius here is not one of those guys. This is a different Gaius. We don't know anything about him except for what John said here. Now, obviously, John has a great affection for him because he says, you're my beloved. That word means one who's dear to another person, one who is greatly loved, and so John greatly loves, has a great love for Gaius. Another thing about John, he, he's, the, the, uh, one who is, he's the, the one who loves, and he talks about love a lot. But all, that was a rare term in secular Greek back then. People didn't use that term, but although it was rare in secular Greek, the unbelieving world, it's used often in the New Testament, commonly used in, in the New Testament. Why do you think that would be? That the word beloved, a word of tenderness, would be not be used in the secular world, but would be used in the scriptures, it's because the world doesn't know Christ. They rejected him. They, they didn't know him. If you don't know Christ, you don't know his love. And if you don't know the love of Christ, you can't love, love others with the love of Christ. It's not going to happen. But when you're in Christ, when you know Christ, then you have the love of Christ. Romans 5, 5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So yes, true love does not characterize a lost world without Christ, but it does uh, characterize a believer because true love only comes from Christ. It comes from nowhere else. If you're not related to Christ, you won't have his love. You won't even comprehend this kind of love. Now, another way John expressed his affection for Gaius is in verse 1. He says, By who, he says whom I love in truth. Actually, it's very emphatic there. He says literally, be whom I myself, I myself love in truth. John has a special place in his heart for Gaius. This is not a casual statement. He's not saying, you know, Gaius is a great guy. I really love that guy. He's not saying that. He's saying, I love him in truth. Now, this is the first of seven times this word truth is used in some form in 3 John. And with John, we, we're going to see that truth is everything. So what is he saying? He's saying that John is saying, I, myself, and Gaius, we operate in the realm of truth. 
We are in the truth. We continue to be faithful to the truth. We bear a right relationship to the truth. The truth is the word of God that unites all believers. We're all united by one thing, the truth. The world today, they question the truth. They don't know what the truth is. They, uh, don't, they misunderstand the truth. But we have the truth of the word of God in front of us. And the love we have for another, one another, is based on what? It's based on God's truth. It's based on the truth of the word of God. Love doesn't operate in a vacuum. It's not based on feelings. It's not based on emotions. It is based in the truth. It's anchored in the truth of the word of God. Not dependent on circumstances, none of that. There's a foundation for truth. That's the word of God. And don't let love blind us to the truth either. We can't let that happen. We can't sacrifice doctrinal truth just because other people that are religious want us to get together with them and, and love each other. And all. We, we don't do that. We don't throw away the truth. So, and it appears to be the loving thing to do to get with the other people who don't know the truth and don't love the truth and don't care about the truth. <clears throat> we don't want to do that. Love and truth go hand in hand. John's love for Gaius is rooted in biblical truth. Now look at verse 2. The elder not only loves Gaius, he doesn't only love him, but he desires a certain thing for him. Verse 2, he says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. That word pray can mean one of two things. It can, mean, it can be a strong desire, a wish. I wish this for you, Gaius. I, I desire this for you. Or it can mean an actual prayer. And I believe that John does have a desire for Gaius, but knowing the character of John, that desire becomes his prayer. This is what he wants for Gaius. This is what he desires for Gaius. What's he praying for? He wants him to prosper. Does that ring a bell? He wants him to prosper in all respects and be in good health. So now, <clears throat> is John teaching a prosperity gospel? Is that what he's teaching here? A lot of people say that he is. A guy named Landrus, L-A-N-D-R-U-S, did a study. By the way, Landrus is a Pentecostal guy. He wrote this in the Journal, Journal of Pentecostal Theology. He did a study of the interpretation of verse 2 over the centuries, dating back to early centuries. And he found that the, the interpretation, very unbiased study for this guy, he found the interpretation of this verse was consistent through time. And the stress is on the overall welfare of Gaius, especially his spiritual welfare. So he found out the interpretation was, <clears throat> I want Gaius to have, to be, uh, you know, to have a, a, a good welfare, especially spiritually. He does have a good spiritual welfare. But in 1947, a different interpretation came about by, through a man by the name of Oral Roberts. Oral Roberts read this, and he said, he takes the greeting of 3 John, Oral Roberts does, he takes the greeting of 3 John in verse 2 to secure, listen to this, <clears throat> to mean to secure the promise of physical, financial, and spiritual prosperity for all believers. In other words, Oral Roberts says, here's what this verse, I'm here to enlighten all of you after all these centuries. Here's what this verse means. God has promised all believers that you're going to be prosperous financially, physically, spiritually, in every way. And then Kenneth Hagin came along and said much the same. And others came along and said much the same. And that was his interpretation. Now, if that is true, if the promise of physical, financial, spiritual, Prosperity is secured, is the key word. It's secured for all believers, and the New Testament has some explaining to do. Now, I'm, I'm, what I'm talking about here is very popular, as Jimmy has told us many times, very popular in religion today, prosperity gospel. People talk about it all the time. We don't hear it about it in this church, of course. 
but they hear about it elsewhere. Now, the Lord certainly wants our spiritual prosperity. He definitely wants that. And he may grant to you, now listen to this, the word may, he may grant you physical prosperity. He may grant you financial prosperity. I know people who are believers who love the Lord who have been blessed tremendously in financial ways. And they are a blessing to the gospel ministry. They support missionaries. They do a lot of good for the world. He may allow that. However, he may not allow that. He may not bless us financially. He may not bless us with great health physically and all this. Well, as I said, if this is secured for everyone, every believer, the New Testament has some explaining to do. For example, how do we explain the fact that Paul left Trophimus sick at Miletus, 2 Timothy 4.20? He says, I left my co-worker Trophimus sick. I left him ill when I took off and left. Why did he do that? Why didn't he heal him? What, what about, um, he was a faithful co-worker of Paul's. Why didn't he heal him? Why were the churches of Macedonia in deep poverty, 2 Corinthians 8? Read that carefully. They were, deep, they were rock bottom poor, those, those people were, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Why didn't the Lord prosper them financially? They gave. They gave to the work of Christ, even though they didn't have anything to give. Why did Paul suffer so much if the promise is secure of financial material, physical prosperity is secured for all believers. Why didn't, Paul, uh, why didn't Paul experience this? Why did he suffer so much? Listen to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, 27. <clears throat> Carefully, Paul says this, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst. Listen to this next phrase. Often without food and cold and exposure. Sounds like he's on a camping trip to me, ones I've been on lately at least. That doesn't exactly sound like he's living a prosperous life, an earthly prosperous life. And there are other examples the Lord, that we could point to. The Lord never promises all believers, never secures the promise of financial, physical, material prosperity. It's true the Lord does meet the needs of his people. He gives them their daily bread. What about Paul, though? Did not Paul go without food? Often it says, yeah, but I think Paul was a man, I know Paul was a man that God intended to suffer, Acts chapter 9, you're going to suffer for me, and I know he was a guy who was an example of true sacrificial living for Christ, what it actually looks like, but Paul did not starve either. Now, the Lord may allow us to go through various kinds of trials for his sake, for his, his reason, reasons that he has. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. His intent is to make us learn to be content in Christ. That's what I believe. If he allows us to suffer trials of various kinds, hardships I'm talking about right now, remember the words of Paul in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. What a great passage. Philippians 4, verse 11. Paul says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be, in, be content in whatever circumstances I am, Paul says, I've learned to be content no matter the circumstances. It doesn't matter to me what the circumstances are, good or bad. I've learned to be content. Verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live how? In prosperity. Oh, he knows how to live in prosperity. Let the good times roll. He knows how to live like that. But in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled on the one hand, going hungry on the other hand, both of having abundance and suffering need. How can he do this? Verse 13, 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's how he can do it. Paul learned all that. The Lord may make it tough on us to, learn us, to have us learn to be content in him. We may have to eat beans and rice for a while. Or maybe we don't get anything. Maybe there's no food for a little while. He may allow that. <clears throat> be thankful for what you have. The Lord has blessed us in this country beyond anything we can dream of. And if you are, by the way, if you're starving tonight, please let us know. We'll help you. But the Lord may bring us to the place of enduring hard times. I don't think this country could even begin to imagine what that would be like. Now, does this mean that we, don't, we can't pray for people who are to be in good health? We shouldn't pray for people to be... We, we always get Wednesday night. We get tons of requests for uh, people who are in ill health. We, we visited a guy in the hospital this week, this week, Efren, who's in bad health. He got hit by a bicycle uh, on, on the road. He got, he, he, I'd rather he got hit by a car. He was on a bicycle. <clears throat> so we pray for him. Of course we do. We pray for these guys. John the Elder prays that Gaius will prosper in all respects and be in good health, it says. It's perfectly biblical to pray that way. You can pray for your daily bread. The Lord says to pray for your daily bread. There's no contradiction here. If the Lord brings difficulties our way, that's his business. He calls us to pray the way he said to pray and to respond in a way that honors him. But what does John mean when he says, I pray that in all respects and every, everything... You may prosper and be in good health. The word prosper means to lead along on a good path, to have a successful journey. John is not praying that Gaius will become filthy rich. It's not his prayer. His, his, desire, his desire is simply for the well-being of Gaius, that's all. His emotional, physical, spiritual well-being as he goes through life, that's all he wants for him. John's only concern for finances is later on, maybe in verse 8 talking about missionaries, and we'll talk about that in a minute, who will receive support and encouragement and stuff that they need. But the special concern that John has is for Gaius's physical health. That's what he prays for. Now, no one knows what the problem is. We don't know. It could be Gaius had bad health. He was sickly or was ill in some way, and John's praying this way or wishing this or desiring this for him. It's kind of like what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.23, no longer drink water exclusively, but drink a little water for the sake of your stomach and for your frequent ailments. Because the wine acted like a medicine. That's practical advice. Timothy had physical problems. Paul's saying, hey, look, you might need to take a little wine for physical problems. Whatever the reason, though, Gaius prays for good health. Uh, John prays for Gaius to have good health. That's not unspiritual to pray for that. I pray for that for people who are sick or believers, or even unbelievers I have. But there is something more here than, than even a wish or prayer for good health. Look, look at the text. John is praying for Gaius to be in good health just as your soul prospers, he says. One area Gaius was strong in was spiritual health, spiritual life. He, he may have been physically ill, but he, he had great spiritual health. He was spiritually strong. Look what the, it says his soul was prospering. His soul is prospering. He's spiritually thriving. He has no sickness of soul. The diagnosis for Gaius from John is this. You're in good shape to serve the Lord. Great shape to serve the Lord. And he uses, John uses Gaius' spiritual health as a measure for his physical health. He says, I pray, basically he says, I pray that your physical health can match up to your great spiritual health. That's what I really hope for you. Now, most of us, 
Normally, it's the opposite for, for a lot of us. <clears throat> we might be in decent physical health, but our soul might be suffering. Our soul might be lagging behind because we don't nurture it. We don't feed our soul. We don't grow in grace. We don't do what Mike said today. We worship the Lord and find strength in Him. We don't do these things. We don't give it the spiritual life the attention it deserves, not even a priority often, or just an obligation maybe. We don't do these things, and so it's a secondary issue to us. We don't cultivate our spiritual life like we should, and so we, don't, we have stunted growth. But the man who operated in the spiritual realm of truth, Gaius, obviously devoted himself to spiritual life, and it shows. It shows in his life. Now, how is it with you? Our spiritual matters... Think about this for a minute. Are spiritual matters more important to you than earthly matters? Physical matters, material matters? I'm not saying you should neglect your health. I'm not saying you shouldn't go to the doctor. But I am saying we need to evaluate our spiritual life in the place we give it. You know, you want some prosperity gospel? How about this? John 15, abide in the vine. If we abide in, if we abide in Christ, then we're going to draw our life, our spiritual life from Christ, and we're going to produce what? Fruit, right? That's the, that's the prosperity gospel in the scriptures, the kind where your soul is prospering. Look at John's reaction in verse 3 and 4. He's overjoyed. Verse 3, For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is how you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. He's thrilled with the prosperity of Gaius. Why? Because this is how it should be. Gaius is spiritually prosperous. He's walking the truth. He's living for God. He's doing what he's supposed to do as far as the Lord's concerned. How does, he, how does John know this? How does John know Gaius is prospering spiritually? It says because brethren came and testified to John how Gaius was walking the truth. People came up and they said, hey, this guy Gaius, he is really living for the Lord. He's really a guy who really lives the truth. The brethren here are probably the ministers of the gospel mentioned later in verses 5 to 8. There's a unanimous testimony that this man, Gaius, is spiritually prosperous. He test he's a man of the truth, and they testified about that. So he walks in the truth. says it twice, verse 3 and verse 4. Now, a good sign of spiritual growth in the life of a believer is confirmation from other believers. Other people are saying, hey, this guy is really serving the Lord. We had a missionary come recently. Uh, that I knew years ago, <clears throat> and I hadn't seen this guy in years, and he was in Japan for years, and I, I know this, I know something about this guy. Same guy I saw 30 years ago, still walking in the truth, still a humble guy, still living for the Lord, still wants to serve the Lord, wants to glorify the Lord. That's what we want to see. And so it's confirmed by others. I don't, I don't mean we seek confirmation from other people, but people recognize the fact, hey, this person really living for God here, and people see it. Not because you're putting on a show of piety, but because it's real in your life. And it sets a great example for other people. And Gaius didn't go around saying, hey, I'm a godly man. No, everybody knew he was a godly man. They couldn't help but recognize it. These brethren confirmed the lifestyle of Gaius to John the Elder. Now, what do you think that did for John when he heard that news? What do you think it did for John? It brought him great joy. It says he was very glad to hear this news. He couldn't imagine any greater joy than to hear this. People that had served with him, that he had mentored in his life, were still walking the truth after time had elapsed. could be John led Gaius to Christ. It could be he discipled Gaius. It could be he oversaw Gaius in the church. But he knew who he was, 
And he said, this is one of my spiritual children. I'm excited to hear that he's still walking the truth. That brought untold joy to the elder's heart. You know, without, without knowing it, Gaius, Gaius, and we're going to see this again, Gaius, one of his favorite chapters in the Bible would have been Hebrews 13 had he known it existed. Hebrews 13, 17 said this, says this, Obey your spiritual leaders and submit, for they keep watch over your souls. To the people in the church, he says, Obey your spiritual leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those <clears throat> who will give an account. Let them do that job with joy and not grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. I told you this was a pastoral letter. John's addressing his hearers as an elder rather than as an apostle. A guy who had oversight, spiritual oversight of Gaius, he's thrilled to know that he's, he's filled with joy because Gaius is still living this way. You know, do you want to bring joy to the heart of Mike Sprott and the elders? Then walk in the truth. That's it. Walk in the truth, which obviously starts with Ephesians 1, with the worship of God. That's the goal of pastoral ministry, to know that believers are walking in the, in the truth. Do you know what grieves Mike the most? He's told me this. Well, this is his top two or three, and I'm pretty sure it's top one. It's not the fact that someone disagreed with him on a minor point of theology, although that can be painful. It's not because we ran out of supply, coffee supplies in the foyer, although that's very painful and grieving. What grieves Mike, Pastor Mike, the most is that, and he's told me this on several occasions, people who at one time seem to be walking the truth after some years of elapse, are no longer walking the truth. They're not walking the truth anymore. What grieves him is sheep who have gone astray. What happened to so-and-so five years ago, ten years ago? We're serving the Lord, seem to be. Now they're nowhere to be found. That's grieving. But conversely, what brings him great joy is that to know people are walking the truth, that they are serving the Lord, they're making disciples, they're affecting others, they're reaching out to others. John is overjoyed to know that Gaius is faithfully serving the Lord and he's walking the truth. Gaius didn't just talk the talk of Christianity, he walked it, right? He walked it. Is that what you want? To live the truth. And so John says Gaius is walking the truth. Secondly, John says that Gaius is a fellow worker to the truth. A fellow worker to the truth, verses 5 through 8. Beloved, he says, John says, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren and especially when they are strangers and they have testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. John now tells us one of the ways that Gaius demonstrated the truth. Gaius is doing something very faithful. He is showing hospitality to believers he doesn't even know. They're strangers to him, but they're brothers in Christ, and yet he shows hospitality to them. These brethren he talks about are some kind of missionaries, some kind of itinerant teachers, some kind of itinerant Bible uh, preachers, something like that, and they're going on their way, and Gaius wants to help these guys get on their way and support them as they go on their way to serve the Lord. Again, <clears throat> Gaius, we could say, likes Hebrews 13 because he does what Hebrews 13, 1 and 2 says, let the love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And that is what Gaius does. I don't know if you remember the first time Barnabas came here. How many of you know, does everybody here know Barnabas, our missionary? We don't talk about him much because he's under the radar. To parts of the world that are dangerous, 
He goes by the code name Barnabas because of that. And uh, the first time we invited him to speak here, we didn't know him. He was a stranger to us. And uh, although we had reports concerning him, but what you do, you take missionaries in like that. You take them in, and you feed them, and you house them, and you send them out, and you support them, and you help them, and you encourage them and pray for them. This is what Gaius did. He's hospitable. And look what the missionaries did according to verse 6. <clears throat> they testified of the love Gaius had shown them before the church that John was in, maybe in Ephesus. By the way, this is the only time John uses the word church in all his writing, all his in Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he only says it in 3rd John three times, uses the word church. The church is the place where missionaries are sent out. The church is where, this is why God's people need to love the church. The church is where everything happens as far as God's concerned. Everything is coming, flowing out of the church always. Like missionaries, the Lord appoints the missionaries. The church confirms that call and supports missionaries. The mission board may enter to help, but the church is the sending agency, not another organization. The rest of the verse, verse 6 through 8, instructs us on how to properly treat missionaries. Verse 6, look at verse 6. You will do well to send these guys on their way in a manner worthy of God. Send them out in a manner worthy of God. In other words, send them out in a manner God would approve of. Send them out in a manner God would be pleased with. Boy, that brought up a memory. Don't be like the church where, I saw this happen personally, where prior to going to the other side of the world to be a missionary, this poor guy needed a car and didn't have one. So a guy in the church was selling a car, an old junkie car. He bought it. The missionary with his own money paid for this car, 900 bucks, bought the car. <clears throat> Nobody helped him buy the car. The hood was not even attached to the car. It was sitting kind of on top of the where the hoods, hoods generally sit. And he had a rope around the whole thing or some kind of device to tie this together to the car, and he drove it around. <laughs> I could still see that in my mind. And I thought to myself, you know, everybody else had, everybody that was not going as a missionary in that church had a decent car, nice car, except for the guy that was going out to be a missionary. And I thought, how sad is this? How absolutely pathetic and sad is this situation right now? Missionaries aren't demanding Rolls Royce. Maybe somebody, are, somebody is or something, but we, shouldn't, we don't need to give them that. But let's treat them right. We should treat them right. We should treat them in a manner worthy of God, right? Verse 7, for, why? For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. It doesn't say what name, but we know from verse 6 where it says that the, 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 when it talks about the name of God, that this is God, they went out for the sake of God's name, for his name. That's why they did it. Uh, in other words, ultimately, they went out for the sake of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And uh, that's why they went out. Now, they didn't go out for another reason. They would have never have gone to the ends of the world had it not been for God, had it not been for Christ, had it not been for the Holy Spirit. They would not have done that. And yet here they are going out for his name. That's their only reason for going out, really. And we should take care of these people. We should love them, watch over them, take care of them. They took nothing from the Gentiles, it said. They took no support from pagan Gentiles. They, I read where back in that day, people of different religious beliefs would be on the streets proclaiming their message, and they asked for money. They'd beg for money from people to support them. They would do that. But Christian missionaries can't take money from pagans, from lost people, because that's the people they're ministering to. How strange that would be, right? 
The world does not support the church. The church supports its own. Verse 8, therefore we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. The we in verse 8 is emphatic. We ought to support the church. We ought to support these people, not the world. 1 Corinthians 9.14 says, So also the Lord directed those that those who proclaim the gospel, those who <clears throat> preach the gospel, should get their living from the gospel. That's how it was designed by God. Why do we support men who go out for the sake of the name? Verse 8, it says, So that we may be fellow workers with the truth. When we give uh, financially to support missionaries, when we encourage missionaries, when we pray for them, we have, by the way, we have someone on the field right now, Ryan in Taiwan over there by himself, his family. When we look to help them, we also have uh, people that are working in Honduras, Kenny and others. Andrew just went down there for an internship. When we, but we have Barnabas. When we do these things, when we, when we give to them and when we encourage them, we're, we become co-workers with them. We become fellow workers with the truth. We can't, they can't do it alone. They need our help. Who are they going to get help from if they don't get it from us? They're out there somewhere. We've got to love them. They need our help. Really, what we become when we are fellow workers to the truth is, is we become co-workers with God. It's all about God's truth. It's all about God's word. We want to get the truth of the gospel out in order to, globally all over, all over the world to support missionaries, which makes us fellow workers with the truth. So Gaius is a man who embodies the truth. He is a man who operates in the realm of the truth. He believes the truth. It's not only academic for him. He is walking the truth. He lives it. He breathes it. And the truth of the scriptures affect him so much that his soul is thriving in a state of spiritual prosperity. You know, if your soul is thriving in a state of spiritual prosperity, you can't sit on the sidelines and do nothing. You have to get in. You have to do something. You want to do something for God, right? You want to do something for the Lord. Because you love God and you love the brethren. And you have to do that. A lot of people talk about the truth. How many are walking in the truth? You see how it works? We take in the truth and we become, we, we begin to walk in the truth. Our souls begin to prosper. Then we reach out to others and we become fellow workers with the truth. That's how it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be half the church is sitting on the sideline doing nothing. That's never the intent of God ever. That was never the intent. That's how it should be. What, what is your relationship to the truth? Do you live in that realm? Is your soul prospering? Think about that for a minute. Is your soul, is my soul prospering? Or is it kind of a stagnant state of affairs? Do we know the truth? Do we love the truth? Are we walking in the truth? And as a result of all that, does, does that translate into action to become fellow workers with the truth? Being properly related to the truth is what it's all about. We'll see that in the next week as well. John said, I have no greater joy than this to hear my children walking in the truth. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful for your word. We pray that you'll help us to be people, as Mike said this morning, who worship you and love you and that our soul thrives because of it and who put our faith in you and who find our strength in you and that your life flows through ours to reach others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.